You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast and Happy New Year. Happy 2023. This is going to be our first podcast of the year, and I'm really excited to invite back onto the podcast, Ben Hunt. Ben is the co-founder and partner at Second Foundation Partners. He writes along with his uh, colleague, Russigan at EpsilonTheory.com. It is the financial website that I follow and always read and find everything they they put out absolutely fascinating. If you are confused by investing, by the financial system, it's narratives all the way down at Epsilon Theory and you need to be reading it. Ben, welcome welcome back to the Strong Downs podcast. So nice to see you. Thank you, Chuck. It's, a, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for that uh, warm introduction. I really appreciate it. You know, I immersed myself about two decades ago now in CNBC and like every website I could find about finance, because I, I realized after a, like a decade of investing that I was the sucker at the card table, right? Like every, mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to invest in this company. And then the company would come up with earnings and it would do really well. And then the stock price would fall 20%. And I'd be like, what, what don't I get? Like, what am I not getting? And so I learned like all the lingo, what do interest rates do to bonds and what's an arbitrage and was it, and I got to where like I was I was smart enough then to realize that I was the sucker at the card table. It's only when I got to your stuff that I started to re- recognize the game, right? Just for people who didn't listen to our last podcast, can you give just a little overview of Epsilon Theory and what you guys are trying to do? Sure. I'll extend the poker playing riff that you started with because what you're riffing on is that old line that in the first 30 minutes, if you don't know who the sucker is at the table, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> and the big goal, I'll say, of what we write on Epsilon Theory is to help people, as you're describing, not be the sucker at the table. That's it. Right? There's always a sucker at the table. And that the important thing is that you're not it. It's it's not that you're going to be the the boss of the table, right? That that ain't going to happen. You're not going to be the big stack at the table. Yeah, I can get the that, whale, that, right? We, mm-hmm. Right, that's right. But what we can all achieve is just don't be the sucker. Just don't be the patsy of of the table. And I think that the key to that is another saying from poker, which is that you're not just playing the cards; you're playing the players. I think this is true for both poker and markets. The more you get into it, the more you learn, the more you learn how important, how much more important playing the player is than playing the cards. Right? Anybody can play the cards. There's, there's no edge in you know, the cards themselves. There's, there's no edge in reading an earnings report. There's no edge in listening to the CEO or analyst talk about a company, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of the smartest people in the world are doing that also. There ain't no edge there. You're not hearing anything that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people aren't also hearing. 
many of whom have a lot more information than you do. So you're not going to ever get an edge from playing the cards alone, the fundamentals as we describe them in investing. But how you become the sucker is that you believe that you do. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. this, the biggest step you can take to not be the sucker at the table is to recognize that other people sitting at the table are playing you. And I'm not saying you have to immerse yourself in markets and the day-to-day, learn the narratives and the like, and so you can start kind of playing back so that you can play the player also. Just recognizing that playing the player is probably the biggest part of investing. Just recognizing that, recognizing that you do not have an edge from DYOR, do your own research, right? There is no edge there. I'm sorry, but there's not. That's a prerequisite. That's the table stakes. <laughs> well, that's, that's to get in the it's game. The ante. Yeah. It's the ante. Mm-hmm. Right on, Chuck. Right on. So what we do at Epsilon Theory is we try to look at the world, the social world. So that's primarily markets, but also politics through the lens of narrative, of the stories that we tell each other and we tell ourselves. The reason we do that is that there is a concerted effort made, this is how professionals play the player, to create these stories. The business of Wall Street is to create a story. Maybe it's a story of value. Maybe it's a story of growth. Maybe it's a story of fraud. Maybe it's a story of you know, discovery, right? But it's a story. And they create these stories because we human beings are quite literally hardwired. Our brains are evolved to respond to grammatical structures and linguistic phrases. We just, we, we are, and I can give you lots of evidence that we're actually evolved in this way. So that these stories are created intentionally to get us to bet in a certain way. <laughs> That's it. It's, it's, it's playing the player. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of a bluff, right? You're, or a bet, right? You're, 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 you're making a statement to the table and we are hardwired to respond to these statements. So that's what we try to analyze. We try to analyze the structure of narrative. And there is a structure. There's a life cycle, right? Stories are created. They're born. They grow. They peak. And then they die over and over and over again. We tell the same stories to ourselves over and over again. I'll give you a quick example, Chuck. So this is... I. I, I watch a lot of TV. <laughs> People say, you know, you shouldn't watch so much. Your, your writing's full of these. Uh, analogies. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I say you make time for TV. That's, that's my attitude. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the TV show Law and Order has over 600 episodes. I haven't seen all 600, but I've seen my fair share. Let me assure you. The thing about Law and Order, 600 episodes, there are only 12 scripts. 12 scripts for 600 episodes. That's it. Frankly, every episode, every Law & Order episode, every 620-whatever episodes has a three-act play structure where a seemingly tangential character 
a neighbor, a family member is introduced two-thirds of the way into Act 1. That same character is then reintroduced at the beginning of Act 3 as the linchpin of the conclusion of that episode, that plot. Every episode, watch for it. Two-thirds of the way into Act 1, the tangential character is introduced, and you know he or she is the linchpin to the whole thing. It's exactly the same way in politics. It's exactly the same way in investing. We have more than 12. We have a finite number of scripts that we use to describe things. In investing, there's a script to describe an economy that is moving from recession to recovery. There's a script that we use to describe an economy that's going from recovery to growth from growth to late stage, from late stage to recession. There's a script to describe a central bank as being hawkish, a script to describe them as being dovish. We're living through the, the inflation script right now, right? Which we had taking off the taking off the shelf for a first time Absolutely. in a while. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now this you know some new words come and go, right? With this like pivot is a new yeah. word to describe central bank policy. But the amazing thing, Chuck, and this is, I've been working on this subject of narrative and understanding the structure of narrative for my professional career. So 35 years now, I was a professor for a long time, then I started a software company, then I got into the investing world. Common thread is understanding narrative. Understanding it scientifically. So it's called natural language processing. This is not cold fusion, right? It's, these are the, all the algorithms, all the network analysis. I was doing this stuff 30 years ago. It's the same algorithms. What has changed, Chuck, and has changed everything, is first, big data, the ability to get everything that's published in the English language, every piece of unstructured text delivered to me in real time. Right by Dow Jones and Thompson Reuters and some of these other data providers. It's, it's incredible, amazing. I literally get everything that's published in the English language all the time, just uh, that fire hose. What's even more important is what I'll call big compute because the analysis, these algorithms, they're very simple. This is not AI, this is not machine learning, right? It's just brute force computing processing power to compare words and phrases against other words and phrases and see the connections, measure the connections, the connectivity. The ability to just tap into AWS at Amazon or Azure or whatever you're using and get infinite computing processing power in the same way that I plug into the wall to get electricity, that's what changes everything. Everything. And then that's really only happened over the last, call it, you know, three to five years, and certainly in a in a cost-effective way. Big data, even more importantly, big compute allows us to create, it's like a microscope to see the invisible world of narrative, to see, visualize this invisible world. Can I give you an analogy that I, I have not heard you say, but I've thought this because I've looked at the word things you put together. I feel like you are a meteorologist of narrative. When I plug into your stuff, what I see is you are like, here's an early cloud formation of narrative. 
and uh, it could develop into a category five, but it also could fade. And here's kind of the trajectory of it right now. And, you know, as we go along here, I'm going to bring up an article you wrote seven months ago about the corruption of Bitcoin. That was you actually even going back even further saying this, this formation's coming it's coming together. Like this narrative is starting to, is that a fair way of, of projecting what you're doing? I love that. I love that way. I, I, you know, I had not considered that before that meteorological, I tripped over that. Um, (laughs) The weather analogy that you're making here, Chuck, I, I love it. I love it. The two analogies I've had have been telescopes and microscopes, right? Both of which allow us to see a world that to our naked eye, we can't. But I love the idea of uh, the weather formations because what natural language processing is, what the scientific study of narrative structure is all about, is about the connections. It's a network math where the visualizations, it's not up, down, left, right. It's center of gravity. It's phrases are used, they call it centrality, betweenness. It's different ways of describing a network. And these networks, are they, they rule our lives today, right? Whether it's a, a computer network, internet, right? A cellular network, our own bodies. It's the connections that are important, the linkages. And that's what big data and big compute allow us to analyze in a way that was invisible to us like say, even just five years ago. So it is like weather, right? I mean, it's, we've, we've got our Doppler radar now where we can see these weather systems develop, grow, dissipate. It's tracking the life cycle of this stuff that I think is so meaningful. But you're absolutely right. Speaking of Bitcoin, crypto more broadly, you know, the weather formation here has been just a a massive front that's been building for years. And I think that particularly with uh, the Bankman Freed FTX Alameda fraud is just going to really descend on us. And the weather front that I'm describing is profound expansion of government regulation of state power over Bitcoin and crypto, which makes me profoundly sad, but I'm telling you, it is absolutely coming. Let me go back to the beginning of this because I first heard of Bitcoin when it was $100 a Bitcoin. Uh, it went up to like 60,000, is now sitting in, in here in mid December, somewhere around like 16 or something like that. And I look at that as a measurement of the, the narrative, right? About Bitcoin. <laughs> I don't know if you. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. no, no. Bitcoin and crypto in general is pure narrative. It's right, pure right. story, which makes it a, a wonderful subject for my analysis, right? Yeah, exactly right. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the story that I got at the beginning was this kind of rebellious, very bottom-up, renegade kind of notion. And let me put it in the context of your writing, too. There's a lot of us and I don't think you and I are unique. I think this is becoming a kind of pervasive experience, especially as the narrative and reality diverge even more with big data, right? 
there's this sense that it is all narrative. And Bitcoin was kind of sold as this way to, or at least promoted early on, the, the narrative around it or the way we talked about it was that this was a way to, if not unplug from the insanity of the current narrative financial world, at least hedge yourself and get on some like firm ground outside of it um, in a way that could help you protect yourself and be stable and, and have real relationships with people that had a financial component to it that was not going to be intermediated by a big bank or by the, you know, the, 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 a big corporation or, you know, even, even the federal government. But very early Chuck, on, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chuck, that's OG Bitcoin, which OG I just Bitcoin, love right, right. OG Bitcoin, and and and. Okay, let's let's stop there for a sec because to me there was yeah. like a one point one version where the the narrative clouds started to build already. Let's describe that OG Bitcoin as the like. I think you even said it's great art. Isn't that what you called it? it? Is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's elegant, beautiful art. Yes. And you said that as high praise. Right. Can you elaborate? Maybe we should just elaborate on that to begin with. Sure. So I was on this call, this conference call. I haven't been invited back for reasons you'll <laughs> as I'll describe, right? So it was a call with, I don't know, usual suspects, let's call it, right? Fed people and, you know, journalists and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Paul Krugman was on. Who, by the way, let me just make this really clear. In every experience I've ever had with Paul, he is kind, gentle, smart. Okay. So in every personal interaction I've ever had with him, he's a prince of a guy. So I want to make that really clear. The thrust of the call was, is there anything to Bitcoin? And Paul Krugman was saying, you know, what's the use case? I don't see the use case. Let's do the use case. The person who had set up the call, I was supposed to be like a, you know, an adversary to Bitcoin on this call. And they had a couple of people who were supposed to be supporters of Bitcoin on the call. And the, and the best that the supporters of Bitcoin on the call could come up with was, oh, it's an effective way to transmit money to people who are either in or out of the country for people who are living in Venezuela or Iran. And that's a use case. I get it. I, a friend of mine, Alex Goldstein, does wonderful work in this, and, and he's absolutely right. And that's a use case. But let me tell you, that is not why you had 50 people on a call at 10 o'clock at night to talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> they, were right. on the, they were on the call because Bitcoin at the time was trading at thirty or $40,000 Bitcoin. That's why they were on the call. It's not why my neighbor was foaming at the mouth to tell me how smart he was for investing in Bitcoin. Right. He's not worried Correct. about getting money to some, you know, street vendor in Venezuela. Right. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, you know, the negative, you know, the, the, the side I was on was saying it's narrative. It's just, you know, the, we've got this narrative number go up. There's, it's the beanie baby phenomenon and it's all that. And, and so, and then the whole call was, oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's just awful. It's, there's nothing to it. And then finally I just switched sides. I just switched sides in the, in, in, in the call. I said, this is, this is crazy guys. I, I mean, you're saying that Bitcoin's worthless and nothing. And I said, that's just not true. Bitcoin taps into 
a sense of autonomy, of independence, of long time horizon, of entrepreneurialism. It inspires. What's the use case of Bitcoin? The use case of Bitcoin is it's amazing art. People think of that as I'm putting it down. It's my highest praise. Because art is what we're here on earth to do, my friends, right? I mean, art is what inspires. It has such beauty and elegance, right? Yes. I love what OG Bitcoin, what you were describing, autonomy of mind, autonomy of of economy, a long time horizon, taking care of your family, your pack. Yes, please. I want to be part of that movement. But what makes me so sad, right, Chuck, is that it's not that government wants to ban Bitcoin. Government and Wall Street want to co-opt Bitcoin. They want to bring it in. They want to securitize it. They want to leverage it. They want to make it part of the flow business of Wall Street. They want to play the game. Right, That poker game that we were talking about to start the show, they want to play the game and they're winning. It's, it's now become another table at the casino and you can step right up and you can be the sucker or not the sucker, whatever you want to do, but it's become part of that casino Wall Street, Washington ecosystem. And that ain't changing. I feel like this is where my neighbor, and I use this, my neighbor as an avatar of yes, many, yes, many, yes, many yes. people who would come to me and say, Chuck, you, you need to get in on this. I've got this coin or that coin or this thing, and it's about to take off. It's going to 100x. And these are people who, and uh, again, I think in the investment world, in the world of people who are serious about managing their money. I am in the bottom 5% of the most informed people, right? But in the general population of people, I'm in the upper 5%. 99th percentile. Yes, yes, absolutely. yes. So people, yeah, no doubt. So no doubt. these are people who are coming to me who can't explain what an arbitrage is. And they're telling me that, you know, I need to get in on this thing. And it wasn't hard for me in these early days to look around and say, whether whether you're the sucker at the card table or me, you're looking like it, right? Because it's the card table where they say, well, it's a $10 minimum and you can 1,000x everything just if you get the right hand. Can we just talk a little bit about that transition from Bitcoin OG to, you know, you-, you Bitcoin. Bitcoin TM, I call it's it. It's Bitcoin, right. right. It's the trademark. It's the- Jazz hands. Yeah, exactly. Jazz hands. <laughs> yeah. You know, come on in. And it was Dogecoin and all these like, basically like get rich quick notions, which to me was the opposite of OG Bitcoin, right? Like OG Bitcoin was not the, the art of it. The elegant, beautiful part of it was the empowerment, not the ability to not get the game yacht. playing. Right. So 100%. How did we how did we make that transition and I I think even like more specifically how was the narrative part of 
that capture. I watched my basketball team play last night in uh, crypto.com arena out in LA. (laughs) And I just laughing. I'm like, how in the hell is there an arena named crypto.com? That's insane. But yeah, go ahead. yeah. So you know, the Miami Arena is going to have to FTX, a yes. new, a <laughs> new, a new uh, naming right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'll draw a corollary from Bitcoin to gold. Oh, please, right? because a very a very similar thing happened to gold with the introduction of the gold ETF, GLD. Mm, yeah, yeah, and uh, it transformed the volume, it made it possible for you to trade, to to make a casino game out of gold. You didn't have to buy a gold coin or a gold bar or something like that. You could type up your broker and say, I'll take $100 of GLD, short it, I'll go long it, whatever. And it's transformed the meaning of gold. And what I mean by that is the GLD, when you when you own gold in a portfolio, in a you know a pension fund or the like, you're, it's not because you're expecting the end of the world or dollar debasement or whatever. The old, the OG reason oh, for gold was. Right? I am. That's right. why I have it buried in my backyard, Ben. Because yeah, when course, everything goes course, to hell, right. I'm going to be able to buy uh, bread with gold. I know. I know it. You just you just know it. So, 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 so like I mean. I mean I, and I'm saying these disparaging things about being a gold bug. Yeah. I'm a, an old white guy like you are. Of course, I'm sympathetic, actually, to the whole gold bug, you know, thing. I do think the world's going to hell and all like that. And I mm-hmm. am sympathetic. But I, what I'll tell you is that if we get to that point, right, you don't want gold. You want seed corn and, and ammo, right? Those, that, that's going to be your currency. Right, relationship and ammo. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen. Amen. Right, but what happened? We created a security, and this is what I always tell people: their own, all financial innovation is one of two things: it's a new way to securitize something, or it's a new way to apply leverage to something. Securitization just means it's a easier way. You, you transform the thing into a piece of paper, a piece of paper that you can put into smaller parts and you can trade really easily. Leverage just means you can borrow money on it, right? That $10 word for borrowed money. That's it. Every financial innovation that has ever occurred in the history of man is either a new way to securitize something or a new way to apply leverage something. Why? Because the money, the game in Wall Street is not a game of price. It is a game of flow. It's not price, it's flow. Wall Street doesn't care what game you are playing and kind of there are going to be winners and losers. Who cares? Price goes up or down. Who cares? What they want to get you is into the casino. That's it. That's where the real money is in Wall Street. It's always been. It's not price. It's not buying low and selling high. It's flow. Buying and selling, period. And I say this in a different way. If we all invested our money January 1st in something we felt confident in everybody. And then we just were buy and hold people. 
And we're all just going to let the companies mature and sell their products and report their earnings and pay their dividends. And we didn't do any other transactions after that. Wall Street would collapse in a week, right? It'd be done, right? It would all be over. So the idea that we're encouraged to look at fundamentals, invest in this business, for that's not, that's not the product they're selling us. They're selling you a story. With gold, once you created the GLD, once you created the security, then you've got to create a story around it. Why should you be paying attention to this and buying and selling it? And so you create a story of, well, it's an insurance against central bank error. That's the main reason that people buy and sell GLD. Oh, it's a diversifier against these other assets. There, there are all these stories that come up. All of these stories have now been introduced with Bitcoin. All of them. So that you'll hear people talking about, oh, it, you know, watch out for that dollar debasement. You need to go buy this, you know, Bitcoin or, you know, Michael Saylor and, and you know, MicroStrategies. It's like, you know, it's a wrapper. It's a it's a securitization of Bitcoin. That's what it is. You know, it's the same thing he did back in 2000 with the MicroStrategies in the first place when he, you know, blew up. It's 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 the same people, literally the same people who are involved in the housing bubble, who are involved in the dot-com bubble, who are now saying, hey, we have a new instrument for our stories to generate flow. That's it. That is Wall Street. It is stories to generate attention and flow. Number go up is the story. Fear of missing out is the story. It's it's frustrating because, again, we are hardwired to respond to these. Your neighbor, as you're describing. Yeah, lovely man. It, it, he's, he's all of us. Mm-hmm. He's all of us. We, we, we literally have neural clusters that are designed to respond positively to a story of growth and to respond with urgency when we hear a story that we are missing out on something good. I'm not saying that in a metaphorical sense. I'm saying that in a biological sense, right? Yes. And, yes. and the people who make up these stories, they know it. They know right. that. And they do it over and over again. Let me even go so far as to say you and I, and I'll, I'll, say, I'll say you, but I'm going to include me in this, knowing this, still watch Law and & Order and enjoy the story. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, I've been doing this, like I say, you know, professionally studying the scripts we follow for 30 plus years. I think I read things differently than most people. Right? I, I feel like I've got some, I've built up some protection, right, from, from the stories about, but I, I, get, I, get, I get caught up in a story all the time, all the time. Have I ever told you the story was called Gelman Amnesia? Have I told you this story? No, no, no. Uh-uh. It's a phenomenon, actually, that Michael Crichton, I don't know if you remember this name. So Michael Crichton wrote The Andromeda Strain. He wrote yeah, Westworld. Jurassic Park was his big yeah. one, right? He invented the techno thriller. He invented the whole genre. It's amazing, right? He moved out to Hollywood. He directed lots of movies. He did, so he became kind of a Hollywood bigwig as well. But uh, he was giving a talk, and he was talking about his friend, 
Murray Gelman, a physicist. So Murray Gelman, uh, he's most famous for discovering, or you know, the first one to identify the quark. So he named the subatomic particles quarks. Murray Gelman did that. So Crichton's giving this talk. He said, you know, I was talking with my buddy Murray, and he was asking me about something he had read in the Hollywood Reporter about a movie. And I said, oh, Murray, no, no, no. That, that article got it completely wrong. I Trust me, I know. I was involved in that movie, and they, that everything is wrong about that article. It's just terribly wrong. Murray goes, oh. And Michael Crichton says, oh, but let me, I was reading this article actually about science and physics in the, in the New York Times. Let me ask you about that. And Murray Gelman said, oh, my God. Michael, that article was just totally wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just completely wrong. And Michael says that that's when it hit him that whenever he's read an article about something that he was he knew a lot about, a movie he was involved in, a book, something in Hollywood, every time, 100%, he'd read that article, something he knew a lot about, he'd say, oh, my God, this, this is, is just totally off. Yeah, totally off, right? <laughs> but here's the thing, and this is why he calls it Gelman amnesia, because Murray did, did the same thing. We we read that article that we know a lot about, and we say, "Oh my God, we got there should be a retraction printed." The, the, these guys are idiots. We turn the page, and we read an article about something we don't know a lot about, and we go, "Huh, that's interesting." And the story makes I, sense. Right? The story that, that the, makes sense. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I didn't mm-hmm. know. I didn't know that. How interesting. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I remember I heard that story, you know, from 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 Crichton, and and I, and I remember thinking, oh my god. And, and Chuck, I bet I'm sure you've had this experience too, right? So so you you live long you live long enough, right? You 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 a company you work with or work, so there's there's something that gets published in a big newspaper, and you know a lot about the the story. Well, the the whole yeah. reckless driver thing I've been pounding on oh all last God. year. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. You read the story and mm-hmm. you go, this is nonsense. This is this insane. Is this all is wrong. crazy. Right. It's all wrong. And right. yet, this is the amnesia part. We turn the page, you know, we click to a new, you know, browser window, and we look at another story that we don't know a lot about, and we go, oh, that's interesting. Or, yeah, oh, man, yeah. that I, really, that I really makes something. me mad. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, but when, it, when I say that this is biological, I really mean it. We are really hardwired. Something respond right back here. Yeah. In certain ways. Exactly right. Exactly right. And this was exactly that's what's happened with Bitcoin to transform it from OG Bitcoin, which I just, I just love everything about it. To me, it's great art, right? And, and it taps into those and inspires those qualities that I think are just so important in the modern age. And then you see it transformed, deformed into Bitcoin TM, Bitcoin with jazz hands. Yeah. (laughs) Right. An, An instrument that is securitized and levered in Wall Street for number go up, for flow at the casino table. And it drives me nuts. But that's the world. That's the world we're in. I was stunned when I read your article, The Green Protocol. I was stunned because I felt like it was a, I think I emailed you at the time and said, you are doing some heavy intellectual lifting. 
to take the OG concept and pull out of it the art, the bottom-up simplicity, beauty of it, and go back to this idea of democratizing things, but in a way that was for the public good. I know we've got like 15 minutes left, and I want to get to the meltdown that we're going through a little bit. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. But I, I can me, describe the principle pretty quickly. Sure. Okay. Cause I, to me, it was beautiful in that same way that you described, you know, OG Bitcoin. What perverts OG Bitcoin, my view, is that it enters and it's directly entrenched in the world of money. And money is the raison d'etre of the state. They're not going to let it go. And look, you know, for my money, the, the smartest, most revolutionary guy who ever lived a little over 2,000 years ago. Render unto Caesar. The same thing. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> when they come to him and say, hey, Jesus, what are we going to do about these, you know, these gold coins and taxes and stuff like that? He said, hey, no, 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 guys. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So the world of money, that's Caesar's world. I, and, and we've all got to participate in Caesar's world. I get it. <laughs> really, I do. But you're not going to. We don't have to be owned by it. That's right. And, and, and so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to separate out the elegance of a, of a solution to the distributed trust problem. How do I trust someone I don't know? across distance and across how do I do that but to do that outside of the world of money to apply the elegance of Satoshi and Bitcoin that elegant art to something that is not directly oh this is money and I am certain and there are other people working on similar projects all around the world don't get a lot of attention applying that question of distributed trust mine was I went by the simple project planting trees let's plant a trillion trees are in the world. We could do it. We'll use a ledger, distributed ledger system. We'll include incentives here so that people will participate and want to do it. But the incentive is primarily not let's get rich. The incentive is tapping into I want to do good in the world, <laughs> which is a damn powerful incentive for a lot of people. It's a story we can believe in, right? Yes. And, and so I think there are lots of opportunities. I think there are many people doing projects like that around the world, but it doesn't get attention. It doesn't get the excitement. We're not hardwired to respond to those stories in large part because very few people are telling those stories. The people who tell the stories are the ones who want to get you to come into the casino, to get you to come into the money lender. That's where the stories are told, and that's what we're inundated with. So my goal, my job is to tell more stories. I call them the old stories. Uh, and to tell them in an interesting, compelling way, right? So that maybe some scales drop some from some people's eyes, right? And we recapture that OG spirit of Bitcoin. So in the work that we do at Strong Towns, there's this immense tension that we have 
between the the top down system of delivering cities, places we live, infrastructure. And to me, it's the, you know, when we say Bitcoin jazz hands, to me, there's an infrastructure jazz hands thing. Like, hey, absolutely. Your neighborhood's crumbling, it's falling apart. You're struggling to make ends meet. You can't get to your job. There's a, but we're going to come in and we'll build you a fifth and sixth lane on your highway around the city. And, and that's going to solve enormous amounts Crumbling of Crumbling infrastructure. Is there, is there any more overused, you know, intentionally framed for these mega projects than the phrase crumbling infrastructure? Because it's always associated with exactly what you said, you know, crumbling infrastructure. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah. We need to build I another lane, you know, another, another, you know, five lanes on the highway. Yes. So that we can get the next Walmart and the next Costco and the next. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Correct. So right. this problem has always been a problem of democratization of, in a sense, project selection with funding. And the game as it's set up today is that we pay our taxes to the state, we pay our taxes to the federal government, and then those get granted out in, in projects. And, and I don't even think we have to go to conspiracy land or hate government land or anything like that to just recognize that that system is kind of predisposed to pick a certain style of, of project. And that's not the style of project that my neighbors out in the street would pick because they see the urgencies in, in front of them. When I read the Green Protocol and when I read you know, this idea of having projects of good that would uh, when you go out and perform them would give you tokens of good. And then that could transform into these coins that, that would be a blockchain thing that could be traded then. And you, that, that we could reward in a sense through our bottom up currency, the types of, of day-to-day actions I'm sitting here and we're getting six inches of snow. I walk to work. It's six, seven blocks. About a third of my neighbors don't shovel their sidewalks. Some of them don't shovel their sidewalks because they don't care and they're jerks. But a lot of them don't shovel their sidewalks because it's an old lady or it's someone who's have. I've always thought, I've had this idea in my brain that, you know what? If the city would do their part and enforce the, the ordinance with the people who don't shovel theirs, we could get a neighborhood group together to shovel the ones that, that have struggled. And it would work really well. Do you know what would make that like lubricated? Great is a bottom up crypto uh, exchange. A little coin, a little coin, a little token. Absolutely. Problem and solved. Problem solved. And, and I read your thing and, and it, it took these like nascent ideas I had and said, Bitcoin OG is a beautiful work of art that can supercharge all kinds of good in the world. If we think about it differently, I'm, I'm, are we on the same page? I feel like we are. We're on exactly the same page, Chuck. And, I, and I'll tell you that but what the roadblock I had after I published that piece was the message I was trying to get across was the message you just expressed. That message was received by, you know, tens and tens of people, Chuck. <laughs> right? yeah. Where the message resonated. So I'm an early adopter, you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, it, it's that you heard the signal I was trying to put out. What, what signal was picked up by 
a lot more of people was, oh, let me tell you about my, you know, Ethereum project, right? Where we're going to, I've got venture money to buy this and we're going to make a lot of money on it, right? It, it, it became co-opted, not co-opted is too strong because I'm not letting it be co-opted. It, 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 people wanted to put it into the casino. People wanted to put it into the casino. Exactly right. John. Right. People wanted to put it in the casino. This is a good idea. So, yeah. Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm, I'm, what I'm hopeful for is that the collapse of the casino, and that's what we're witnessing in real time. The casino is collapsing all around us. My hope is that from the rubble of this casino, I'll be able to reintroduce the notion of these projects of good, tokens of good, and bring that back. So I'm so happy to have this opportunity to talk with you about it, Chuck, because that's my plan for 2023 is to relaunch this. So in May of 2022, was it 2022? Yep. Yeah, it was. Yeah. You wrote this article called The MacGuffin. You said part one, and I'm an avid reader of your site. And I've been thinking like, when is part two? Where the hell is part two? Part two didn't come out until November. <laughs> yep. I've got it right here. I want to I want to read the summary you put for this. And again, I'm going to say May of 2022. This is way before the Sam Bankman-Fried meltdown, FTX collapse. This is you said if you don't see that the crypto industry has become just as blindingly corrupt, just as oozingly fatuous, just as profoundly captured as the traditional financial services industry it was supposed to replace, you're not paying attention. Okay, I think I know the answer to how this metastasized, but maybe just walk us through how Bitcoin OG, we got to now Bitcoin jazz hands, Bitcoin jazz hands has now blown up. Is that just a, a given of this narrative construct? Is that, was that inevitable once it came into the casino? It is absolutely inevitable. It has happened. You know, I give you tons of examples before. The best example I can give you though is mortgage-backed securities, right? So it, it really followed exactly the same process where you had, you know, uh, mortgages, the real world principle is fantastic, right? We can, we can have home ownership by using leverage, right? Putting down a small amount of equity and the bank over a long period of time, it, or we pay them back over a long period of time, reasonable rate of interest, it's transformative to allow people to own their own homes, just transformative. So there are two parts to what you're doing when you get a mortgage from the bank. There's the, the mortgage, the money you owe, and there's the deed, the property you own that underpins the mortgage, what you owe. Financial innovation comes in. We are going to separate mortgage from deed. We are going to create tranches just of mortgages create these mortgage-backed securities that, well, they'll never actually you know, have default, so we don't have to worry about connecting it to the deed that sits at that county courthouse. We're going to sever the two, and then we're going to have more innovation. We're going to have more math. It's called the Gaussian copula, where we're going to prove, mathematically prove, that you can create these securities with these different credit tranches, and it's essentially free money. 
company. This became a $10 trillion asset class in just a few short years, right? There was a bubble in the issuance of mortgage-backed securities, and it collapses in 08 because it was bullshit. You said that in a way, too, Same as you were thing. explaining it, that yeah. sounded a little like cheeky, but that was the story, right? Like, I mean, that was you, it. right. That, that actually was, <laughs> that actually it, it was looks, the story, right? It looks silly in retrospect, but it was the story. Yeah. And it's the same thing here, right? Where, where we've got, okay, now we're going to create Bitcoin securities. Well, why stop there for goodness sake? Why, why, why is your Bitcoin just sitting here and not earning interest? You know, like in a bank account. Right? Oh no! Well, we can't do that. We we're going to take it and we're going to pay you a nice rate of interest because we're lending it out to people who are staking something. The magic box here. Oh, we're going to lend it to Alameda because they promised fifteen percent guaranteed returns. Right? Because that's it, yeah. these are old stories, Chuck. This is old wine in a new bottle. It's the same script. <laughs> The same three-act play structure, and it always has the beginning, the middle, the end, and the end is always this, what we're witnessing today. This is why I feel like you're a meteorologist. I mean, it, 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 it is <laughs> a meteorologist right. of narrative because it's not like- um, Here comes know, the hurricane. <laughs> yeah. We have hurricanes. We have tornadoes. We have strong winds. We have blizzards. There's a, there's a finite number of outcomes, and you're just looking at the weather pattern saying, we see this one forming. So that, that, that's where we are, Chuck. I mean, that, that, that's exactly what happened here with the crypto yield you know, industry. BlockFi, this company that just recently went, uh, bankrupt, and you know, my view was a feeder fund for the FTX Alameda fraud. It had ten billion dollars in AUM, six hundred and fifty thousand accounts. This is this is this is your neighbor. This is your neighbor, Chuck. This, these are this is not whales and big shots. This is how it works. You you start these programs to get flow, and the flow comes from you, me, and your neighbor. And that's what we've got to watch out for. Yeah. I think the interesting thing that I'm going to be waiting to see is where the bailouts happen. I have heard, and I don't know if this is true, but one of the things that I've heard is that there were a few, you know, as Bitcoin jazz hands became more institutionalized and respectable, it became the thing that you could put part of your savings in and have a have a return and i've i've heard that there were at least some pension funds that got into that you know like okay we're not going to put but we'll have a we'll have a little bit in it because we want to capture some of that upside and i'm just going to be interested to see you know i mean it's the who's swimming naked right that's right and i think that today my, my strong sense is that it's not in that pension institutional world. And my very strong sense is that they were very much getting interested and that the FTX Alameda fraud is going to evaporate institutional interest for a decade. And, and Chuck, early that's enough. wonderful yeah. news. That's wonderful news. Wonderful news. For, for, mm -hmm. for me, who's interested in a return to those OG Bitcoin principles. I want institutions out, right? I want Wall Street out. I want Washington out. Unfortunately, we're not going to get that. 
And it's going to be a really tough road to hoe, I think, for all of us who want those OG Bitcoin principles as the heavy hand of the U.S. Treasury and Wall Street and Washington come down even harder on crypto ownership and Bitcoin ownership. Ben Hunt, you can find all the articles we talked about today at EpsilonTheory.com. If you, if you get more than one in a month as a subscription, I'm going to tell you, friends, pay the subscription, read the articles. You're going to find yourself staying up late at night like me, digesting them again and again. Ben, I, I love spending time with you. I, I love chatting with you. I hope we get to do this in person someday soon. I'd love that, Chuck. Uh, and happy to, uh, happy to talk with you anytime. Appreciate it. Thank you. You and I are recording this in December, but it's going to be our first podcast of the year. So let me say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I hope you have a beautiful 2023. I've gotten to uh, to know a little bit of your family just through the work that you do. I think you'll be sympathetic to me that I have a, a high school senior uh, daughter. <laughs> so my life has been uh, filled with joy and strain and anticipation and tension. We'll get together and chat about it all someday, I hope. Fantastic. Wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks again, Chuck. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and yours as well. Thank you. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.